BOC Nation Radio Network, Wrestling with History, Voice of Choice, Bruce Work, Killer Ken Resnick. We are live on the Megaphone platform. This is the platform of Westwood One with Radio.com. All of the other major podcast platforms reside right here, and this is the very first episode of Wrestling with History on Megaphone. So very happy to be here. As I said, my name is the Voice of Choice, Bruce Wirt, and I am flanked, as always, by Killer Ken Resnick. Ken, formerly of AWA, WWF, LPWA, AWF, Roller Derby, and so many other great things that he's done over the years. But this show takes advantage of Killer Ken's experience working in professional wrestling in the big time in the early 1980s. We started with 83, and we're going to take this journey as long as we can take it. With your feedback, we're going to look at different things that happened in each year, starting from 83. And uh, if you go back in the archives, you can start this journey. It happened about six weeks ago. For, uh, with 1983, and we're going to continue going. So we're in 84. I'll tell you in a little bit what we're going to cover this week. But before I do that, Ken, I want to officially welcome you for the very first time. Now that all the election hype is over and we can get back to normal, I want to welcome you to the new platform on VOC Nation. Well, I tell you what, Bruce, uh, you, in all seriousness, deserve... Uh, an awful lot of accolades. You know, Voc Nation wa- was one of the leading, you know, podcast platforms, uh, certainly about pro wrestling. Then, uh, you know, y- you went away for a while and uh, came back and have resurrected it to the fact where, you know, Megaphone uh, wanted the, you know, entire library of Voc Nation programming. And there's no question. Uh, you and Brady Hicks, uh, huge props because you two guys are certainly the driving force. Yeah, for those of you who are new to VOC Nation Radio Network, so part of what we do is live streaming uh, podcasts, I guess you can call it, but streaming talk radio so you can interact with some of our hosts and uh, Brady Hicks, who Ken mentioned, Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, does In the Room on Tuesday nights. That's live on VOCNation.com. The podcast is right here on your favorite podcast app. Just search for VOC Nation Radio Network. And uh, Brady has lots of great guests on that program you can interact with. Also on VOC Nation, you have Shelly Martinez, former Ariel and Salinas, uh, WWE and TNA. Shelly's live on Wednesdays. You got uh, WCW's Maestro, if you remember the Maestro from WCW. He is on Thursdays, and he takes callers. Ken and I drop this podcast. This is podcast only on Wednesdays. Wes Briscoe drops the podcast usually on Thursdays. And all of this great content's right here on the VOC Nation radio network. Now, you can interact with the network. You know, any of those hosts, you can uh, tweet at VOC Nation. But if you want to interact with Ken and I about the things that we talk about, you just tweet me, at Bruce VOC. So find that on Twitter. 
And again, we're taking you through the early 80s. This week, 1984, Ken, we've done a lot of work in 84. We started with uh, the birth of Hulkamania in the WWF and the title change. We've worked our way through the summer. We're coming up towards the end of the year. So we're going to cover some of the major things that happened in 84, including, uh, by popular request, Starcade, which was uh, done down south in the Jim Crockett NWA uh, territory. Uh, but before we do that, I want to give a chance uh, for you to talk about the hottest selling t-shirt in VOC Nation. It's certainly the Killer Ken Made It Real shirt. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, when that Killer Ken t-shirt first came out, you know, Brady Hicks was pretty outspoken that in sales he was going to his t-shirt was going to crush it and in reality it's been exactly the opposite uh so i'm very proud of proud of that uh and appreciative of of so many fans really uh around the world that that have bought it uh every time someone does and a lot of times they post pictures of themselves uh, to me on Facebook, I'm, I'm honored that they would want it and, and humble that, that they would want it. So, uh, and it is, uh, it's, I'm very proud of the t-shirt, um, for the most part that it includes, you know, those great promotions that I was privileged to work for. Yeah, it's a, it's an awesome shirt and the quality is really nice too. So a lot of you have uh, wrestling fans have, bought in shirts before from pro wrestling tees so you know they only give you the best so go to the pro wrestling tees store found on vocnation.com that's capital vocnation.com click that and you can get any of the voc nation shirts so ken shelly maestro there's lots of good shirts available on voc nation and it supports the show so, Ken, getting into what we're going to do this week, we're going to finish the rest of 1984. But last week, we talked about, we gave fans a chance to rebook 1984 as if Hulk Hogan never made the jump to the WWF. Let's pretend he stayed in the AWA and Vince had to start his, his national quest with somebody else. We did a poll on Twitter, Andre the Giant, won uh, the majority of uh, well over a thousand votes. It was over 1500 votes came in. Andre the Giant was uh, the fans choice of who they would have uh, taken that journey with. And uh, it's interesting, Ken, we talked a lot last week about whether or not Andre could have done it. And <laughs> neither you or I thought that Andre had the, uh, the, um, uh, the gift of gab to talk fans into the building. Well, I, uh, that and also the fact that you needed someone that could wrestle, you know, 20 to 25 nights a month. And Andre was just, you know, it, at a point where he could no longer do that. And you're right, uh, whoever it was, and, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, Ric Flair or the Macho Man. Uh, would have been my two choices, but someone that, that could motivate people watching the interviews to go to the show, to buy the tickets, and also give the, the fans, you know, just an unbelievable match to make them want to come back. And as I said for the fans that didn't hear last week, I, I think one of the reasons 
that people and fans went with Andre as their number one choice was because they are probably thinking of all the people, that's who they would have liked to have seen in person, owing, if nothing else, to you know his tremendous size. But it's kind of like once you have seen him, you're not necessarily going to want to go back and buy a ticket unless he has that passion to persuade or motivate you to do that on his interviews. And Andre was just, you know, he he was, for his size, very much an introvert. And I don't think he really enjoyed doing the interviews. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, I, I just want to get into the questions here because uh, it's usually a fast and furious hour. And it's a good transition to our first question. We'll read the best questions that we get each week, either at Bruce VOC on Twitter, or you can email Bruce at VOCNation.com. This is from Brian S. in Dallas, Texas. Kenny wants to know, Andre the Giant, was he as big as they build him to be? So you must have stood next to Andre once or twice in your WWF uh, run. So was Andre as, as tall as he was uh, made out to be? One word, yes. Wow, Okay. I had always heard that Andre was like, uh, you know, uh, legit 6'10", 6'11", uh, I guess towards the end of his career. But Andre was, was just a huge guy, I guess. Oh, he, he was legit over seven feet. Um, you know, he would – he towered over me. Uh, and I, I think most every interviewer did it. You know, I, I know I did. Um he used to wear a ring on, you know, his ring finger and I would have him take off that ring and I could literally get all four of my fingers into that ring that he just wore on his ring finger. So he was every bit legitimate as build. Wow. Yeah. That's, um, I think that's one of those things that fans never, I, I hear that about Hulk Hogan too. Uh, I, I, I was talking to a guy years ago that uh, swore to me that he met Hulk Hogan in an airport and Hulk Hogan was like six one two sixty. And I said, I don't know what, who you met that told you they were Hulk Hogan, but, but there's no way that you met Hulk Hogan and he was six one two sixty. Well, uh, let me just say this. All anyone has to do is go back either uh, with a still photo or so many of our interviews are, are on YouTube or on the WWE Network. You know, I've shrunk about an inch since those days. But back in those days, I was a legitimate six feet one. That's how tall I was. And you take a look at how Hulk towered over me, you know, by three, four, five inches. So... Uh, for anyone to say Hulk was only six foot one is just absurd because that was my height. I was six foot one. Now I'm about six feet. I've shrunk about an inch, but I was six one. And on every single interview, you can tell he's three, four inches taller than I am. All right. Speaking of absurd, Kevin from Abbott Park, Illinois, uh, sent in the, this is an absurd question. He sent it to Bruce at VOCNation.com. He said, if Barry Windham had stuck with the real American theme music, could Barry Windham have played the same part that Hulk Hogan did? That's Kevin in Abbott Park, Illinois. Is the theme music that big of a deal, Ken? Is that, is that what put the Hulkster over the top? 
Barry Windham was a tremendous in-ring talent. Uh, even today, Barry is very quiet. Um, you know, I did not a, a, a ton of, but interviews with Barry. And while it wasn't like pulling teeth, it was kind of close. Barry was and is a very quiet guy, not boisterous, <clears throat> you know, doesn't talk a lot, would give you, you know, very short answers, but because it, it, it not any sort of criticism against Barry, but he was quiet, introverted, and didn't have the same kind of passion for doing or in his interviews as the likes of you know Hulk Hogan or the Macho Man or Roddy Piper or or Ric Flair, uh, and n no, it it you know the intro music added to it, but you know uh, that was we talk about today how things you know the meat and potatoes of an issue that. Uh, the 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 entrance music would be hard pressed to even just be the the appetizer. It was more like the water and the you know basket of rolls they put down before you order. <laughs> Tropical Fox on Twitter sent the tweet to at Bruce Foc and said if Randy Savage was the person to take the wheel in the WWF, how soon would they have turned him heel? So if Randy Savage, I'm guessing Ken, if he was the guy that uh, did that Hulk Hogan run and was the ultra baby face. Randy was uh, switched back and forth a few times. So how soon would they have turned him heel? Tropical. Uh, I, I, I think the best answer I could give would have be shortly before he was going to drop the belt because to do that, to go nationwide, you know, besides the, you know, in ring and the WWF, you know, interviews for television, the appearances, the, you know, charity stuff, the working, you know, doing interviews with local media to first get that across the country. I think 95% you need a baby face to do that. So they would not have switched Randy heel and, you know, he was a, a great heel, but it would have been shortly before he was going to drop the belt. Very good. All right, Ken, let's do one more, and we'll take it from uh, Raymond Radford on Twitter. And Raymond wants to know, he said, you mentioned Jimmy Superfly Snooker couldn't talk people into the building, but were people interested in the high-flying act back in the 1980s? And I'm guessing, oh. Ken, I'm, I'm guessing, Ken, that question is, could the high-flying act, and I think we covered this a lot last week, but could the high-flying act could have, uh, instead of talking people into the building, could that attraction have worked uh, to get people into the building? Uh, in terms of could he have been the, the face of the franchise like Hulk was or, you know, if Hulk had stayed in the AWA, somebody else would have? Yeah. Uh, no because you still needed the passion on the interviews. You still needed to, you know, in a way those interviews were, you know, deemed to be kind of one-on-one -on -one between, uh, you know, myself leading in or the wrestler 
doing the promo direct to the fans, and Jimmy would not have had that ability. Certainly, the high-flying act when people saw him at the arena could would have made people just one of the reasons they would want to have come back, but I don't think he could have been the, the face of the franchise. And we talked about that because I think that's one of those things like Andre where fans would come to see that, you know, maybe once in a while if it was new. But I think once that high-flying, and especially as you got later into the decade, Jimmy Snuka's high-flying act, there were so many people that ended up doing it. You know, Ricky Steamboat came into the territory. Um, there, were, there were lots of uh, people that ended up uh, doing the, uh, the high-risk moves. I just, I'm not sure if it would have had the, long, the longevity that Hulk Hogan ended up having. I agree completely. All right, then let's, uh, this is a good time. We'll take a quick commercial break. We'll come back on the other side, and we'll get into some more of what happened in 1984. Remember, you can interact with the show. You can either email Bruce at VOCNation.com, tweet at BruceVOC. This is Wrestling With History. We're worldwide on the VOC Nation radio network. VOC Nation Wrestling with History, the voice of choice, Bruce Work, Killer Ken Resnick. We're covering 1984. We've done that for the last few weeks, and we're going to um, try to get through it this week. We've promised fans for a while that we, we're going to talk about the NWA, and the big event uh, that year was Starcade 1984. And I just want to remind fans because every think everybody especially if you're from a wwe perspective you think of wrestlemania as the first major event and in a lot of ways it was the first big event in wrestling that brought in um a lot of different celebrities but really the first major event if you think about supercard in wrestling that was like closed circuit was starcade starcade 83 got it kicked off and then in 84 they brought in uh, Joe Frazier to be part of the, uh, the card. And that brought some mainstream attention to the NWA. And I think fans forget about that, Ken. Forget about the fact that Starcade was before WrestleMania. Well, yeah, as I look back on Starcade, and, you know, for me, in, in some ways, knowing we're going to be doing this, it was a little bit of an education because you're absolutely right. I mean, Jim, Proc Jim Crockett Promotions led the way in a lot of areas that people, not that they forget, that they just don't, you know, realize. And Starcade 83 was the first, you know, closed circuit. Then they did it again in 84. And I think even in, I think it was Starcade 85, it might have been 86, Bruce, but where they did it from two different locations, right. you know, and the two live locations had, had a big screen where fans there could watch what was happening in the other location. So a lot of people don't realize that it was Jim Crockett and Starcade that was a precursor to when Vince did uh, WrestleMania from uh, three locations, I think Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York. So, you know, Crockett created that. Uh, and like you say, he was, you know, b before WrestleMania, Crockett was the first one when they, when they brought in Joe Frazier as a referee, 
it was one of those things, well, it was a great idea on paper. Uh, the, the way the, the finish was probably not so much. Uh, but, you know, and I remember even back then that it was Jim Crockett Promotions and the AWA at the same time, Bruce, that kind of pioneered our huge shows like Jim Crockett were Thanksgiving and Christmas. Right. You know, Crockett out of the Greensboro Coliseum and the AWA out of the the St. Paul Civic Center. So the uh, the two promotions had a, a, a little bit, you know, in common. Uh, but Starcade did do a lot of, of things in Jim Crockett promotions. As I looked at Starcade, that a lot of things they did are what has fans all upset about what wrestling is doing today but it was actually crockett some good some bad that pioneered a lot of it all right so ken let's let's kind of set the stage here for for starcade and and all the things that are happening here yeah starcade definitely before wrestlemania so at the same time that vince mcmahon is doing his thing ted turner who had been a, a huge wrestling fan growing up as a kid always fascinated with the wrestling product they had Georgia Championship Wrestling on TBS, and that kind of set the stage for the battle that was to come. You know, instead of just a small uh, weekly television taping inside of a TV studio, they started mixing in live arena matches. And then in, uh, I guess it was 83, uh, Crockett purchased a television unit, a mobile television production unit, and they came out with Starcade, And that was the first major wrestling event and um you know that carried into 84 and that was again the big event before wrestlemania and the big draw in 1984 was them bringing in joe frazier so just before we get into anything else about that and more of the backstory joe frazier in 1984 so i was just a young kid in 84 so the first boxing name that really duck out to me was Mike Tyson in the late 80s. But tell me about how Joe Frazier was in mainstream pop culture in 1984. I mean, you can still say probably, or at least arguably, you know, the, the greatest trilogy in heavyweight boxing was Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali. So, not to the degree Muhammad Ali was, but certainly very close. You know, Joe Frazier, uh, Foreman really hadn't come along to prominence yet. Uh, I mean, Joe Frazier was a, a huge, huge name. And that was really Jim Crockett, you know, ahead of Br Vince bringing in Liberace uh, at, at WrestleMania again. Jim Crockett was really the first one to say, hey, let's try and get mainstream invested in our pro wrestling product. And, you know, along with bringing in Joe Frazier to, to try and make it, you know, believable and, you know, equate it to like a, a heavyweight championship fight. Remember, the, the main event between Dusty and Ric Flair was billed as, as the million-dollar challenge, and the winner was going to get a check for, you know, $1 million to kind of equate it to, you know, this is real, just like 
pro boxing, and here we've got Joe Frazier as a referee. And and that was, I think, really the, the first time a promoter, you know, it was still the kayfabe era, but Jim Crockett was really the first one to try and reach out and say, hey, let's make everyone believe that this is has the same legitimacy as a world championship fight and that's i think probably how the the you know thought of bringing in joe frazier came to be yeah and we'll talk about it a little later didn't work out as great as they probably had hoped um but but the other thing that happened on the way to this event is uh we talked a lot in the previous weeks about vince mcmahon coming in and buying up tv uh, slots in different territories and he went down and purchased the controlling interest of Georgia Championship Wrestling to get that TV time down in the uh, in the southern market so Jack and Jerry Briscoe and Jim Barnett were purchased up by Vince McMahon and famously it was called Black Saturday WWF television aired on TBS in 1984 for uh, for a while. It was a couple of months. And do you remember that, Ken? Was that talked about up in Minnesota when you were working in the AWA? Uh, it, it was talked about a little bit, but, you know, up until Georgia Championship Wrestling, you know, was on WTBS. Uh, and remember, cable at that time was just beginning to emerge. I don't even know if at that point WTBS TBS was kind of a, a super station. So it was talked about, but it really wasn't that big a deal because they weren't on in the upper Midwest. Right. But it, it was a short-lived, uh, a short-lived experiment. So July 14th is when WWF took over on TV with Turner. And just a few months later, uh, severe backlash. And, and they had to go back to uh, the wrestling that people wanted to see on TBS and Jim Crockett bought the time slot uh, from Vince McMahon for a million dollars. So uh, that was, I think the famous thing here also is Vince McMahon refused to sell to, uh, to Turner and, you know, he he instead sold to Jim Crockett promotions and uh, world championship wrestling was formed. So here we are going into Starcade 1984. And, you know, Ken, we talked about, um, this card not being exactly what it was uh, supposed to be. So I think a lot of the matches were, were the card was put together well. Let me say it that way. You had a lot of great matches, big stars. You know, it was kind of like, if you look at the talent, it was just as good or, or better than what WrestleMania would have a year later. But a lot of the finishes just left, uh, left a lot to be desired. And I think that they didn't get the momentum that they were looking for from that Starcade event. I think you're absolutely right. Like, you know, I, I've said the booking uh, was great. The, the finishes were horrific. But again, <clears throat> and looking back on it, you know, the, the complaints uh, my own, and when I interact with, with fans at events or just walking around, three of the, the biggest complaints that people have about today's wrestling is there's way too many championships, <clears throat> outside interference, 
has become a default position. And a lot of the finishes are like, what? And looking at it, you know, Jim Crockett Promotions and the NWA were, while they were beginning to expand, Bruce, they were still a, a regional promotion. You know, they, they weren't national by any stretch, but at Starcade 84, there were like five NWA titles. I mean, it's a regional promotion. They had, you know, Mid-Atlantic. They had the television title, the United States title, the heavyweight title. I mean, they even had the brass knuckle brass titles. Knuckles. <laughs> you know, and it's like I'm going one uh, brass knuckles championship. Wait a minute. How many brass knuckle matches did you have? And, you know, when people say it's billed as one thing, it turns out to be something else. They build it as a brass knuckles championship, but there were no brass knuckles. They just taped their their fingers and wrists. <laughs> so, you know, when, you know, people say there, there's too many titles or they talk about one thing, but it doesn't turn out to be that way. And there's too much outside interference. Uh Jim Crockett promotions at Starcade 84 kind of led the way with a lot of that. Yeah, let's let's look. So you got the NWA Junior World Heavyweight Championship. That started it off. Danny Brown and Mike Davis. NWA Florida Heavyweight Championship. The Brass Knuckles Championship. The Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship. The World Television Championship. The United States Heavyweight Championship. And, of course, the main event, uh, with Joe Frazier as the special referee, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Ken Resnick, the first... So, I, I mean, just, just think about that, Bruce. This is a, a regional promotion, and, you know, that's what they all were right. yet in, in those days, that had seven championship belts, and we didn't even talk about the tag team title. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's like people say there's too many belts today, well, in comparison, where they're like, it's like, you know, WWF or AEW is kind of a national promotion. Here they had seven singles titles. <laughs> yeah, and I think they were trying to do that. Some of these titles were probably created just for this card. Uh, you know, neither, neither one of us, and this is uh, pure uh, the transparency, neither one of us are NWA experts. I think people listen to this show more for the behind the scenes on the WWF or AWA. But uh, I think some of these titles were probably created for this card. I'm not sure how many times the Brass Knuckles Championship was uh, was defended. Actually, I am sure. There were six times, and... Uh, <laughs> Once uh, in 1984, uh, and it was uh, it was at that card. So, um, yeah, that. Well, now, now the the interesting question, and you're far more the historian uh, uh, than than I am. But if there were six brass knuckle championship matches, I wonder if any of the matches actually featured brass knuckles. Yeah. Well, well, we'll have to go back and look. So, um, so, and maybe some of those matches happened in the famously in what, what Rio de Janeiro? Is that, is that where? So, Parts unknown. Yeah. So the first thing that I can find is Bobby Duncombe was announced the champion in 1980, and it doesn't. No, but there's no record of him beating anybody. And then Black Bart was anointed the champion in '84. So. There was nothing that happened in from 80 to 84. Probably for this event, Black Bart had the title. 
and then uh, Manny Fernandez later in the year, Black Bart again in 85, and then Ron Bass was the last known person to hold the title in 1986. He defeated Black Bart, and, uh, and then that was it. It was deactivated in December of 86, the Brass yeah, Knuckles and, and, Championship. And, you know, fans now are upset, and, you know, I call it it's almost become the default position. I, I think at Starcade 84, you know, the, the busiest man of the night was J.J. Dillon because I think he was involved in like three or four outside interference-type decisions in that night. Well, that's, that's the thing about this card, and I, I'll get into that in just a second. Before we get into the Schmaz finishes and, and kind of comparing that to today, uh, the very first, one of the first men to be introduced after the announcers, so you open it up with Bob Cottle and Gordon Soley, and, uh, you know, Tony Schiavone, of course, was the backstage interviewer there. But Tom Miller's in the ring, ring announcer, and he introduces the referee for the first couple matches, Ken, Mr. Earl Hebner. Yeah. Um, there were <laughs> uh, – Earl and Dave were, I mean, certainly, you know, tremendous guys, tremendous uh, referees. So when I started looking back at, at Starcade, I'd kind of forgotten that. So it's like, well, there's a few guys uh, – uh, I know that, uh, you know, came to, to prominence, uh, and Earl Hebner was one. And also from what I, I remember, cause we, we, even though we didn't see it, we, you know, heard a lot about it. And I remember right after it happened, um, the, the two big topics, you know, up here in the AWA, when it was talked about was all the technical issues they had, uh, in the broadcast and how the main event was kind of a disaster, at least in terms of the fans and, and uh, the, the finish. Well, it was, well, like you say, not really what you want to come out of, uh, you know, a major closed circuit. But, you know, I, and, we, and we forget, uh, you know, not only did they sell out the Greensboro Coliseum, but they had, uh, you know, I think – uh, from the various closed circuit venues, there was well over a hundred thousand people that that came to see this. So, in terms, while wrestling-wise, it may not have been a success, certainly financially, it was. Well, and the thing I, I and we'll focus on the main event in a second because I want to compare that to like a WrestleMania main event today. But you know, you. There, there's so much, there's so many names in this card, but one of the things that stuck out to me in, in re-watching this was uh, superstar Billy Graham taking on Wahoo McDaniel, and, and Billy Graham, who was, you know, former WWWF world champion, one of the most iconic figures in pro wrestling history, he, uh, he has this karate man gimmick. You know, he had he'd been fresh from Japan and he, he came over and he developed this karate man gimmick and he's doing this this horrific looking martial arts. Like it looks so uh, rehearsed. And I think if this were to happen today, it would not get by wrestling fans, not one bit. I, I, I have always thought that, you know, remember the, uh, movie with Pat Morita, the the original Karate Kid, when yeah. he kind of does the one stands on one leg with his arms out. I thought to myself, you know, I bet somebody watched Billy Graham when he was in his karate era, and that's where they came up with that because that was, you know, not too 
far from what Superstar was, you know, doing in in, in that period of of his great career. But you know, again, we we talked about the, the booking great, but the finishes. You know, he had this match with Wahoo McDaniel's, and you know, this, we're talking karate gimmick aside. This is Superstar Billy Graham. And the finish was like he takes a, a chop from McDaniel and yeah. goes down. Yeah. You're kind of like, huh? <laughs> yeah. Four minutes, 18 seconds. It goes down with a chop and loses. That was for the, uh, the U.S. championship. Um, you know, Ken, I, I think the biggest thing for me and, and, you know, promising to cover this event, I think we'll, we'll both admit that we're not experts on the NWA, especially at this time. But the big thing for me, getting into the main event, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, it ends in a complete schmoz. And, uh, you know, of course, Dusty starts bleeding, which was pretty common in this period of professional wrestling. Joe Frazier. Well, and really common for Dusty. I mean, that was, that was almost his pre-finishing move. That was part of the uh, the ultra blonde gimmick. Was it was great for for blood in the hair. So yeah. you know you have Joe Frazier as the special guest referee, and you know, Dusty takes uh, uh, some blood to the head and comes back in the ring, and all of a sudden they stop the match. And I guess they tried to do that because that's what happens in boxing, but really weird and. This is an event in front of, like you said, 100,000 people or more, a chance to be on the big time, big stage. You have all this little technical stuff that happens, you know, and it's, it's the 80s, so we'll give them a pass on that. But this was just a, a real flop of a finish, and it would never happen at a WrestleMania or a big event today. Well, the, the two biggest takeaways that I had, and one I, I can relate directly to <clears throat> the biggest close-up experience that I could liken to them bringing in Joe Frazier was in the AWA uh, in Winnipeg, uh, Canada, after uh, Jack Lanza, Wally Carbo, and Nick Bockwinkel kind of uh, bought the, the Winnipeg market from, from Vern and really built it up. Uh, we had a huge card, and the main event was Rick Martel against Boris Zukov, you know, the Canadian against the Russian. And, you know, this is 84, 85, or this is 85, or actually, I think, 86. Uh, you know, after, you know, the miracle on ice in 80 and then the u.s boycotting 84 and then the russians returning so i mean this is the, the in the height of the cold war so here you've got this great baby-faced canadian champion rick martell defending against the soviet boris zukov and who do they bring in as a special guest referee but hockey fans will remember he was the general manager then of the winnipeg jets and the wha but John Ferguson, the original bad boy in the NHL, the, the goon of the Montreal Canadiens. And the difference was they went over everything with John, you know, over and over and over again. So he looked like, you know, this trained, finished product of a referee. And Joe Frazier, right from the get-go, really didn't, look like he knew where 
or what he was supposed to be doing. And to me that, you know, after Dusty goes down, you know, under the ring, comes out all bloody, gets back in, Frazier keeps stopping the match like two or three times before the finish to check on the eye. So just when they're building up and the crowd's getting involved, Frazier goes in and tries to stop it to go over and look at the eye. And, and it was like, even before the finish, it's like, what are you guys doing? Uh, you know, and then the the thing, and, and we have talked about the, the, lack of psychology so much in, in today's wrestling and forget, you know, the, you know, how the fans reacted to just this bout being stopped because of a cut that, I mean, Dusty had been, you know, bled and cut worse in other matches that, you know, continued uh, to a culmination without any thought of stopping it. And, and here all of a sudden he stops the fight and everything. But, you know, you're you're building up Ric Flair. Well, with that kind of finish, I mean, it's not really anything Flair can celebrate or talk about. It was just like, uh, I mean, when you, when you think about it, it's like who in the world came up with this and how did they sign off on it? Yeah, and, and the only thing I was thinking about it, and, and you know, I don't have – I don't have, I have the context of watching wrestling, you know, when I started, which was the late eighties, um, you know, into the nineties. And, um, I guess back then it was all about, they did these kind of things to inspire people to go to house shows. And, you know, was, was, could that have been part of the thought Ken is they do this finish, this smosh finish with Joe Frazier so that people go to the house shows to see Dusty and Ric Flair again and maybe get a clean finish on, on the house show circuit? Well, I, I mean, you, you would think it would be the reverse, that they, the house shows would try and build up to this huge closed circuit. Um, so, so that doesn't, you know, make any sense. And certainly you have to think about you're getting mainstream media pay attention because you've got Joe Frazier there's probably a lot of non-mainstream wrestling fans that are going to see this closed circuit, and the main event gives them this totally unsatisfactory ending. You know, what about that is going to motivate anybody to say, yeah, I want to go back and kind of get screwed again? Yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and, and one thing, Bruce, I, 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 I want to mention, we, we haven't mentioned it, uh, without question, I think everyone agrees that of Starcade 84, far and away, the best match of the night was Tully Blanchard and Ricky, and Ricky Steamboat for the NWA television title. And you want to talk about somebody that, you know, really didn't get as much, I, I don't want to say respect, but as much uh, acclaim as he deserved, without question, that was the best match of, of Starcade, Ricky and uh, Steamboat and Tully. And a lot of people will still say the best WrestleMania match ever was Ricky the Dragon and the Macho Man Randy Savage. So two of probably the, the biggest closed circuit 
pay-per-view matches of all time, Ricky Steamboat is involved in both of them. Now, let me ask you this, Ken, because we, this name didn't come up last week, but could Ricky Steamboat have taken that torch, uh, no pun intended, in the WWF uh, in 1984? Could Ricky Steamboat have, have been the Hulk Hogan if Hulk Hogan wasn't available? Um, Had the I, look. I'll say, I'll, I'll say maybe, but Ricky Steamboat had – Good interviews, but far and away, Ricky Steamboat's, you know, best talent came out in his matches in the ring. So, you know, I, I, I'd give it, I, I, I guess my answer would be quite possibly, but when you look at, you know, the others in terms of Macho Man or Ric Flair or Roddy Piper, <laughs> Ricky didn't quite have that, you know, larger-than-life persona during his interviews. They were great interviews, but not to the kind of larger-than-life degree that, that, you know, I think was needed. But in terms of wrestling at the arena, you know, getting the fans invested, getting the fans wanting to come back and see him again and again, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one thing I want to touch on before we wrap up Starcade and, and um, you know, just comparing it to WrestleMania a year later was you mentioned the technical difficulties. And there's so many times where the announcers are just kind of staring off, waiting for something to happen, never happens. They threw to Tony Schiavone backstage early in the show. It looked like Tony was getting ready to interview Ric Flair and, Essentially, he just threw it back and said, yeah, I'm back here and we're going to give interviews to you later on. And uh, the Flair interview ended up coming later. But it really looked like they, they didn't quite have their hands around the whole aspect of production. And I guess that was what, what it was back in the 80s. They're used to running in small television studios. They're not used to running world-class television equipment, right? Well, in, you know, watching some of it, um, you know, and in fairness, it was like, you know, I don't know if there was, uh, ex an executive producer per se for that closed circuit, but those are all things that an executive producer lays out that everybody knows when and what's coming next and, and where they're going and you're right, it just seemed like a lot of times the announcers themselves, you know, were unsure. Uh, there was a lot of dead time. So also, did they have, you know, a, a well-manned, as we call it now, the gorilla position to make sure, you know, while the, the current match is in, that the guys in the next match are ready, that they're ready to make their entrance, that the music is queued up. Um, you know, maybe growing pains or, you know, just lack of a, a you know, a, a complete, you know, production crew. Um, but, you know, there, there were some good things and, but, you know, I mean, hindsight's, you know, always 2020, it's, you know, easy to, to criticize, you know, decades later, but you think when, you know you're going to be getting the 
the kind of exposure you are. You want to make sure every I is dotted and, and, you know, every T is crossed. And, you know, I think back to when I made the jump from AWA to, to WWF in, in 86, uh, the production there, I mean, even when I would go out with Gorilla Monsoon, we, we would, you know, do the announcing uh, at house shows for matches that were being taped. Uh, the pre-production, I mean, we knew everything, you know, where it was coming from, where it was going. And, you know, as soon as one match was out, there'd be, you know, about a minute, and boy, the next music, and they would be out there. So, you know, it, it could have been, you know, growing pains, but, you know, not the kind of stuff you want to see when you're getting, you know, your your maximum exposure. And I, I know, you know, we're just about out, but maybe we can talk even a little more, you know, next week. But one of the other things that, that really struck me, I, I mean, uh, it, it wasn't, Bruce, a, a, a botched finish in the main event. That, that was, was the finish. But uh, talk about unsatisfying. But in over half the other matches, they were kind of decided because of, of outside, you know, right. interference. And it was just, you know, like I said, I mean, when you look at the card, you go, boy, this could be a great card. And then, you know, when it was over, you kind of go, uh, what happened? Well, um, that, was, that was, I guess, part of my question to you to kind of put, put a bow on this thing is, was that because I, I assumed watching this that, and, and my context is that Starcade is a chance for Jim Crockett to bring in a bunch of NWA guys from other territories um, you know, for this huge event that they're putting on to really uh, show Vince McMahon, who's boss, you know, when he starts doing his quest up there. And uh, my context was you got all these guys and all these different other promoters, all this, these other NWA promoters that are involved. And so they do all these, these really weird and wacky finishes because nobody wanted their person to lose. Is that part yeah, of what could have been going on? I mean, I think that's a great point, and you reminded me, as I was looking back on it, I kind of came to the same conclusion that it was a little bit kind of what happened with the uh, AWA when they went to the, you know, ill-fated, as it turned out, Pro Wrestling USA, because all the other promoters were part of it, but hey, wait a minute, you're not going to beat my top guys on TV. No, no, wait a second here. So, you know, maybe, maybe that was part of it but uh the the most disappointing part of of starcade 84 to me was it probably exposed pro wrestling to a lot of non-wrestling fans that you know everything considered when it was all said and done probably weren't so much apt to become, you know, wrestling fans or want to see more of the product. Well, that's so, and, and remember WrestleMania, the first WrestleMania ended in a, a, uh, a schmoz finish too with uh snooker and all of the, the stuff that went down in the middle of the ring. But 
I, I don't know. The build was a lot better and the production was a lot better and it just seemed to come off a lot better than what happened with uh, the NWA. And I'm thinking, so my, my final opinion of the card and, and, you know, no, I'm not Dave Meltzer and, and Ken's not either, but my final opinion of the card is you have all of these people that may have tuned in because they wanted to see Joe Frazier. So that's your chance to get mainstream exposure. And then nothing really happens on this card. There's no one moment where you say, oh, wow, I want to go and tune into this stuff every Saturday morning. It was just yeah, yeah. kind of eh. That and, and uh, I think everyone would agree, uh, Ole Anderson was one of the great heels of all time. But against the Coloss, he was like a baby face. You know, it was like... So much of what was done, and again, you know, maybe it was growing pains, but boy, a lot of it just didn't make sense. All right, Starcade 84, we got through it. And Ken, the greatest news of the week is we got through that, and we still have more 1984 to cover. Next week, we'll talk about the David Schultz incident that happened uh, with John Stossel backstage at Madison Square Garden. We'll talk more about Vince McMahon's conquest uh, going into Canada. There's a lot more to unpack in 84. We thought we might get through it this week, but uh, this uh, episode was dominated by Starcade. So that wraps up our, our first episode on Megaphone. So here you go, Ken. Starcade 1984. So lots of requests from the fans. You know, you weren't in the NWA, and, uh, and I was just uh, four years old at the time. So we got through it, and hopefully, um, you know, we gave fans some insight that, that maybe you didn't have, and, and we tied it to uh, I, I love what you said, Ken, about the John Ferguson thing. That's something that I didn't know, and I bet you a lot of fans didn't know about. That is uh, a real contrast to the way of how the NWA decided to use Joe Frazier in uh, exactly the wrong way. And all, all I can say is, Bruce, and rapping, 1984 seems to be just like the Wrestle Rock Rumble. It just will not go away. Will not go away. We did not get through a lot of the other happenings. So next week, we'll try to get into, and, and we do have to complete 1984 at some point, but next week we can talk about the John Stossel incident. You know, that uh, we can go deep into that. That happened backstage at Madison Square Garden. And then Vince McMahon also conquered Canada in 1984. I wanted to get into that. We did touch on Black Saturday. So still some more to unpack in 1984. But hopefully you enjoyed our first First episode on the megaphone, plat megaphone platform here on Wrestling With History, VOC Nation Radio Network. And uh, tune back in next week and every week. Make sure you hit subscribe to VOC Nation on your favorite podcast app, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen. Give us a five-star rating. Leave your comments. Uh, we want to hear from you. And if you have questions or comments that relate or rise out of this week's show, you can email Bruce at VOCNation.com or tweet at Bruce VOC. I'll get those comments over to Killer Ken. One more time before we exit, Ken, they have to get the Killer Ken t-shirt. It's right there at VOCNation.com. Pro Wrestling Tees link, and it's nice, royal blue. Killer Ken made it real. It's the most comfortable shirt in your wardrobe, right? It's 100 heavy duty, 100% pre-shrunk cotton. I know when I got mine, the uh, I was really impressed with the quality. 
it, it's a really, really nice shirt. And uh, very affordable at $19.99. That's it for this week. Wrestling with History Worldwide on the VOC Nation Radio Network. We'll talk to you next week. For Killer Ken Resnick, I am the voice of choice. Have a good week, everybody. Right here is the future of wrestling.